Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to pray that your word will speak powerfully into all our hearts and that truly we will see that Jesus has come, Jesus has risen and what it means for us as we live in this world expecting him to come again. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, when I was younger, uh, I wasn't a Christian and I went to a, a Christian mission school. And I remember every week, I think, we used to have chapel. And during this time of chapel, uh, we used to, if you, if you could just imagine yourself going back, way, way back into the past, okay, uh, we would be sitting, uh, not for the, for all the people who understand what I'm talking about, right? We would be sitting in this room which has no aircon, it has fans, and the big doors open with the wind coming in, and the back of the hall would be lots of bricks at the back of behind the speaker. So what would I be doing uh, while we had chapel? Well, I wouldn't be listening to the sermon, that's for sure. I'll be looking at the back here, counting all the bricks behind the preacher. I'll be looking out the wide open doors, looking at all the butterflies, because we had lots of butterflies then. I don't see so many butterflies now. Okay? Or maybe I'll just be dreaming. Okay? Now, uh, that's why in church today, we don't have any bricks. So you can't count the bricks and we, all the windows are all closed up, so you can't look outside the butterflies. So you need to listen to what I'm saying. But if you'd asked me then, when I was a child, uh, what Christianity was all about, probably because I wasn't paying very much attention, I would have told you that being a Christian was about being a good person. A good person. But how wrong I would have been. Because Christianity is not about being a good person. It is not a morality. It's not a code of morality. That's not the foundation of Christianity. It's not a philosophical system. You know, a philosophical system is where you try to make sense of the world with a system of thinking or a system of thought and see how you fit into all that. No, Christianity is not about that. But the Bible says that Christianity is all about our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is Christianity. And that's what the book of Luke uh, is all about. It is uh, at its heart not a philosophical book, neither is it about a code of morals, but it is about history. And it begins, as you can see, uh, because of uh, one man's uh, question, uh, this person, Theophilus. So if you look at me in verse 3 and 4, uh, Luke seems to be writing uh, to this person called Theophilus. So in verse 3, uh, if you, that's why you need your Bibles in front of you, he says, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, uh, Luke is obviously writing to this person, Theophilus. And we don't know much about Theophilus. Uh, we just know that Theophilus was a Greek name. He's a Greek person. Okay? And uh, he was probably uh, someone prominent. Someone uh, of high standing in society. Uh, that's why it says there he was the most, uh, the most excellent Theophilus. Uh, nobody ever comes up to me and says, uh, most excellent Andrew Ong. Okay? But he was someone of high standing. So he was probably a Greek person. He was a prominent person. And he was probably also a Christian because uh, he seems to be having doubts about the certainty of the things that he had been taught. He had been taught about Christianity, he had been taught about Jesus Christ, but maybe he wasn't so sure anymore. And that was a problem that Theophilus seems to have, a, a problem of doubt. So one of the commentators says that uh, Theophilus was plagued with the mosquito of doubt. You know, it was buzzing all around him. And maybe in the questions in his mind would be, is Jesus really real? Can Jesus really save me? Will I definitely go to heaven when I die? And all these things were buzzing in his head. 
and that caused Luke to write his book or his gospel. The gospel means good news because Theophilus was struggling in doubt and perhaps Luke knew that other people who would also be reading this letter, not just Theophilus, but even people like ourselves, may also struggle with doubt and therefore he wrote this. And that's why many people say that the gospel of Luke, if you want to describe it in one sentence, is the gospel of knowing for sure. Okay, that's what Luke is about, the gospel of knowing for sure. The gospel of certainty, to the certainty of the things that uh, Theophilus has been taught. So how does Luke go about um, persuading or strengthening uh, Theophilus in this moment of doubt? Well, in verse 1, he begins right from the very start and telling Theophilus and ourselves how he has undertaken to write his book. And in verse 1 it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So the first thing that uh, Luke tells us is that uh, in the time that he lived in, uh, many people had undertaken to draw up an account of the things that had been fulfilled among us. Now, uh, the word here, uh, undertaken to draw up an account, is, is the idea of using accuracy in research to find out what really happened. Okay, it's not the word that is used when you write a novel, like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. Okay, it's, it's the idea of drawing an account, setting forth an, an account based on what really happened. So, in Luke's time, surprisingly, uh, there were many, many accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you can only find four accounts of the life of Jesus. But probably during his time, there were many people who would be going around telling people of the, of the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Now, this probably wouldn't just be written accounts because in those days, um, you know, paper, they didn't have paper uh, and they had, you know, uh, skins, animal skins in which they wrote in. The skins were very expensive. They probably had oral accounts. So people would be going around telling stories of the life of Jesus. And many people were doing that. And why were they doing that? Because they could do it because they lived in a time where there were many eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So if you look very carefully at verse 1, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So Luke is writing at a time where uh, the things that Jesus did, the words that he spoke, uh, the activities that he undertook, uh, were just happening or had just happened, it, it was in his living memory, and these people were eyewitnesses, and Luke lived among these people. So the first thing that we know about Jesus is, the things that Jesus did, did not happen in some corner somewhere, seen by one or two people. Okay? Uh, Jesus is not like a UFO sighting. You know, UFO sighting always happens, you notice, at night, and only one or two people see it, and you maybe have one fuzzy photograph, right? Okay? But the things that Jesus did, were seen by many, many people, and they happened during Luke's lifetime. And uh, we know that because uh, Jesus lived for 32 years and he preached and uh, taught and did his miracles uh, much of the time within a very heavily populated area. He was seen by Gentiles, by the Romans, by the Jews, by the, by the authorities. It was all done in the open. And that's why it was seen by many eyewitnesses. Now, uh, recently I bought this book uh, called... Uh, Civilization, okay, uh, by this guy called Nye Ferguson. 
it was really highly recommended, popular, so I, being a popular member, I bought it. But uh, it was really, it was a really good book, it was a very interesting book. And he looks back at all these ancient civilizations. And how does he do it? Well, in the introduction, he tells you that he goes back, he looks at all the manuscripts, he looks at all the, 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 you know, the buildings, the paintings, all the things that were written. But Luke is not like that. Luke is not a historian who sits in a library somewhere, who looks at all the source documents and, and, and sees into the past. Luke is actually looking into his present of what really happened because he has access not to the source documents but to the eyewitnesses. So Luke here uh, checked with these eyewitnesses and also with these other people who are strangely called the servants of the word. Now, who are these people called the servants of the word? Okay, they are not uh, domestic servants of the word. Okay, but it's a phenomenon where in the ancient world, especially in the time of Jesus, many of the people who were eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus often became preachers of God's word, servants of God's word. Literally, they became people who testified to the eyewitness accounts that they saw. That's what we see over and over again in the Gospels. People saw things and then they testified to the things that they saw. They became servants of the word. Now, if you look here, um, in, up here, uh, in the book of um, Acts, right, we see that, uh, okay, we all remember the apostles, right, the twelve apostles, and um, the qualification of an apostle was not that you had a PhD in philosophy, or that, you know, you, ha- you, you were expert in the law, but the qualification of the apostle was that they would have been eyewitnesses to what they had seen in the life of Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 1, uh, after uh, they had lost Judas, you know, Judas killed himself, uh, it said, Therefore it is necessary, they said, to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. From one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. See, the notice the word witness. See, to become an apostle was not to preach philosophy or morality or whatever. It was to be a witness, first and foremost, to the life of Jesus Christ. So what Luke is saying here, right from the very beginning to Theophilus, is that if you have doubts, then turn those doubts away, squash the mosquito of doubt, you know, smack it dead, by, by really realizing that what happened here happened because we know it from eyewitnesses and people who are servants of the word. Now, three things come to mind. First off, when I just look at this first verse, we apply it to ourselves, right? When we, if any of you have doubts or maybe you're not a Christian, the first thing is that sometimes people say, oh, you know, uh, you, you may have met them yourself, I will not believe in Jesus unless you show it to be a fact. And what they really mean is, unless you can prove Jesus to me as a historical, as a fact, uh, I will not believe. And what they are really thinking about is a scientific fact. Right? Unless you can prove Jesus to me through science, uh, or God, through science, I will not believe. And what they mean is, okay, uh, science proves things by, by showing uh, an ex- by a, a repeatable experiment that a, a reality is true. So I could go to the top of this building and I could throw myself off and, uh, and I would hit the ground and I would prove the fact of 
gravity, right? Now, obviously, the easier way of proving it is instead of me going to the roof and jumping off, it's just to drop a, a set of keys, right? So if I drop the keys, what do we expect it to do? Not go up to the roof, but to fall down. So I've proved gravity, right? But how do you prove God? How do you prove Jesus? Well, you can't prove Jesus and God in that way, not in a scientific way, that way. But what Luke is saying is that you can know the fact and reality of Jesus and God because it is a historical fact. And we believe in that to be the bedrock of our society because we have the courts and the law. Now, you can't prove, uh, apart from watching CSI, right? You always think everything is DNA, okay? But apart from using DNA, you know that something happens because eyewitnesses say that it happened. So if I come to you and uh, I steal your wallet from you, you can't do an experiment to show that I stole your wallet, but you can produce eyewitnesses to show that I stole your wallet and that's how you show that it is true. And that's what Luke is trying to say to Theophilus. He's saying that these things that I'm telling you, you know that it's true because they are witnessed by eyewitnesses. And therefore, to become a Christian or to be a believer is not what some people see as a leap of faith. You know, some people say that if you want to become a Christian or believe in God, it's a leap of faith. Have you ever heard the expression before, a leap of faith? Where basically, you, you, faith is defined as believing in something which you do not have any evidence to believe in. You believe in something which is essentially unbelievable. So, uh, I'm sure... Uh, maybe not last. But some people have said to me, I will believe in Jesus before I die. Sort of like life insurance, right? You know? Okay, I've enjoyed my life. Okay, I've got, I know I'm, the end is coming. I can see it. Okay, I'm going to believe in Jesus now so that I can get another extension of my life. But that doesn't work, isn't it? Because how can you believe in something that you really don't believe in? It doesn't make sense. It's like saying, before I die, I will believe that the Japanese invaded Singapore. That doesn't work, isn't it? You either believe that the Japanese invaded Singapore or you don't. You can't make yourself believe in something that you don't believe is true. But, how do you know that the Japanese really believe, uh, invaded Singapore? Well, I mean, you either believe it or you don't, right? But, how, but do you have grounds to believe that it's true? Well, you do, isn't it? I mean, you can go speak to my grandfather. My grandfather was here when the Japanese invaded Singapore. Right? Um, you can read uh, Lee Kuan Yew's account. I, I, I brought friends of mine from Australia. We went to Changi prison and their grandfather was imprisoned by the Japanese. So we know that the Japanese invaded Singapore through the eyewitness accounts of these people. So it's not something where you have to force yourself to believe that the Japanese invaded Singapore. It's not a leap of faith. It's something that you just know is true. And that's what Luke is trying to say here. That what we see in the life of Jesus, what we see in his account is true because it's backed up by eyewitnesses. And that's why, again, uh, to debunk the second point, is to de- the, the Bible here in, in the book of Luke is not legend, but it's history. Uh, you know, because some people say, oh, you know, Jesus, he did all these things, but it's all just legend. You know, people just made it up. Or they, maybe there's a grain of truth. Uh, then it just got bigger and bigger. Maybe, you know, Jesus fed 5,000 men, but maybe in the beginning he just fed 50. Then it became 500. Then it became 5,000. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit like, the, you know, how big is the fish you caught story, right? You know, when you first catch the fish, it's only this big. And then, you know, 10 years later, it's this big. And then, you know, when you're very old, it's like this big, right? But it doesn't work that way because 
in the book of Luke, he's actually spoken to eyewitnesses and this is what really happened. And because eyewitnesses are for the securing of reality and facts and truth, again, people cannot say that, oh, the Bible is just one person's opinion. Have you ever heard of that before where some people say, oh, you know, I only believe in the Bible because, sorry, I don't believe in the Bible because that's, that's Luke's opinion or Matthew's opinion. Because Luke is not dealing with opinions, he's dealing with eyewitness facts. So again, uh, this book is really good, worth this money just for the illustrations, right? There's uh, one point where he says, uh, very quote-worthy, he says there are multiple interpretations of history, to be sure, non-definitive, but there's only one past. And I think that's a good point he makes. He says that, look, you can have different opinions, but there's only one fact. So let's say we come back to the Japanese thing again, right? We, 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 we can argue about why, why, did the, why did the Japanese invade Singapore? Is it because the British were weak? Or, or is it because the Japanese were very strong? Right? Why did it happen? We can all have different opinions. But the fact that the Japanese invaded Singapore is still the, the main historical fact. And that's what Luke is interested in. He's not interested in opinions or interpretations. He just wants to give you the facts of what happened in Jesus' life and what it means. So, like this guy called Polybus, who was a Greek historian of Rome, he said he wants to simply record what really happened and what really was said. So, in verse 3 and 4, he says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke here uses all this eyewitness uh, testimony and he checks, notice how this whole verse here is all about the, the, the truthfulness of his account. He says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. So, first of all, Luke doesn't leave it to some, uh, you know, subordinate or some unreliable uh, junior staff to check the facts. He himself checked the facts. And he says he checked it carefully. He was like a, he's not some sort of slack reporter, but he actually delves into the facts and he checks with the people to make sure that's true. And he checks everything. And not just everything, he checks it from the beginning. And the final product that he, we have here is an orderly account. Now, why does he use the word orderly? Strange, and why does he use the word orderly? Why, why, why is it an orderly account? Well, we know that uh, from uh, history, uh, there were other people who had recorded the reality about uh, Jesus. Uh, one of, some of them were very famous uh, Roman historians. So, you look up here, there's this guy called Tacitus, who was born about 52-54 AD. He was uh, the greatest Roman historian of his day and writing in 1112 AD. He briefly describes how the Christians came about. He says, Christus, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate in Judea. And there's another guy, uh, Pliny the Younger. And he said, he recorded history, they, the Christians, affirm that the sum of their guilt or error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. See, you all wake up so late, really, right? We should wake up earlier. 
when they sang an alternate verse, a hymn to Christ as to a God. Now, these are orderly accounts, but they are orderly accounts not to the life of Jesus, but they are orderly accounts to the history of Rome. So what, uh, what Luke is trying to do is to write an orderly account about, not the, the history of Rome, but an orderly account about the life of Jesus. And you probably think, well, the sermon's going to be very long, right? Because we've still got another like 20 verses. And he begins by looking at, not at Jesus, but he looks at this guy called John. Right? Where's the beginning of the story of Jesus? Not with Jesus, but the, but the beginning of the story starts with this person called John. And in verse 5, uh, if you look at me in the passage, it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, okay, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, they had no, but because they had no children, sorry, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. So now we see Luke begins his account, his testimony, his history. And he is an orderly writer. He starts off by placing John in world history. Not legend, right? He says, okay, these things happened in the time of Herod the Great. And uh, you can go to Wikipedia. You can trust Wikipedia, right? But anyway, in Wikipedia, we know that uh, this Herod the Great ruled from 37 BC to 4 AD. And this guy, Zechariah, was a priest during this time in the midst of world history, in the midst of Herod the Great, king of Judea. And he was married to this person called Elizabeth. And they were both really old. And they both had no children because she was barren. But then in verse 11, something totally unexpected happens. Uh, Zechariah was given the once-in-a-lifetime chance to be priest in the temple where he would go into the inner court and actually serve uh, within the, the Holy of Holies. And there, in verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. In verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Okay, because we would have expected Jesus, right? But hey, where's Jesus? Okay, no, it's John. Okay, now, who is this person, John? He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit even from birth. Now, this must have been a, a really great a bit of news for Zechariah, because I'm sure they've been praying for a child for so long. And here, God, through the angel, tells Zechariah, look, you're going to have a child, but this child is going to be special. Not, are you going, not only going to have a child, he's going to, you're going to have a child who is going to be of service to God. And we know that because, first of all, it says there, that uh, he will never take wine or other fermented drink. Uh, in, the, in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, you can look it up yourself, Numbers, chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, uh, the Nazarites who were given over to serve God would never drink strong drink. And instead of being filled with the wine of uh, the Holy Spirit, sorry, the spirit of wine, 
John will be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. And uh, this was the mark of the prophets of the Old Testament. And this child would be great in the sight of the Lord. Now this is all well and good. But you sort of think, well, how does it fit into the story of Jesus? Because isn't that where, isn't that where Luke is going to? Why does he introduce us to the, the story of John? Apart from the great miracle that God has done. And that's where verse 16 and 17 come in. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, if you can imagine, Zechariah was really shocked when the angel verse appeared and gave him this news about this wonderful child who will be great in the sight of the Lord. How much more shocked will he be now? Because in verse 16 and verse 17, basically, God was saying that John would prepare the way for God's coming. Uh, now, verse 16 and 17, look back to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And up here, in the book of Malachi, uh, God, the book of Malachi was written about 400 years before uh, the birth of John. And the book of Malachi, 400 years ago, had predicted that someone will come and prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for God himself. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare, prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. In chapter 4, verse 5 to 6, See, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, if you come back to verse 16 and 17, this is exactly what John will be. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, when you become a parent, you always uh, have all these great dreams for your children. So, you know, maybe when they're young, you see them kick a soccer ball. Oh, my son's going to be like Lionel Messi. Right? Or you see them, maybe they, they play chopsticks on, the, on their piano. Oh, my son's going to be like this great. You know, he's going to be like uh, Chopin, except he'll live longer, right? And, uh, you know, or maybe he's going to grow up to create all these things. But, but imagine for John... His future has been mapped out 400 years before he was even conceived. That God said John the Baptist would be the Elijah who would come to prepare the way for him. Prepare the way for the Lord Almighty. He was to be the forerunner, the herald of God himself. Now we see something similar like this happen in this world, isn't it? So if a very powerful person were to come, we always have a forerunner or a herald. So you never see President Obama just come up to the stage, just unannounced. You, know, you always have somebody, some ambassador or the Secretary of State saying, you know, and now we have President Obama, President of the United States of America, and then he'll come up to the stage. Or you, know, you watch Academy Awards. You, you never just have the person just come straight up. There's always somebody else who introduces uh, the actor to come on, on the stage. And that was John's job. John the Baptist was miraculously born. He had been given this task 
400 years ago in part, as part of God's plan to prepare the way for God himself, for God's son. So, Luke's account is not just orderly because it sets um, Jesus in terms of world history, but it's orderly because it sets the coming of Jesus as part of God's saving plan in world history. You see, there are two things which are sort of happening at the same time. There's world history as we see it, but there's God's plan which is working within world history. And we need to see that God works in, within world history to fulfill His plans. Now, some people who haven't bothered to really read their Bibles, will say, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe a lot of people say a lot of negative things to me, right? They'll say, you know, Jesus just happened to come along and uh, people poured their expectations onto Jesus and made him something that he really wasn't. Maybe, you know, they had all these expectations, so they just quit. They just fit Jesus into this uh, mold that they wanted him to fit into. But it doesn't work that way, isn't it? Because it is not just the coming of Jesus that they have to fit into this mold. They also have to understand how John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. These two people came together as a couplet. Right? John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. And that's why, if you look back again to chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled uh, among us. I don't know what your ESV might say. I think it might say accomplished. But the idea here is that God has a plan in history and He's accomplishing or fulfilling His plan. Now, I know uh, yesterday in the newspaper, in the Straits Times, uh, did you get to read it? There was this uh, two-page section about uh, this term sec of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs giving some graduation speech at Raffles Institution. Did you all get to read it? Okay, it's very cheap. Okay, so you really have to concentrate like all these allusions to all these novels and people, right? But basically, if you boil it all down, his, his, his talk in one sentence was, he was saying that, um, in one sentence, history is random. Right? History is random. Don't think you're very clever, right? Okay? That's what he's basically saying. So history is random. But, but you see, that's, that's the view of people who don't know God. That everything that happens is just random. You're just here randomly. Today, I'm just here randomly. Everything is random. But in Luke's view, looking at how God works in history, nothing is random. God fulfills His plans. God works out His plans. There is a plan in everything. The plan for John the Baptist didn't just happen 400 years before he was born, but even before creation, God had the plan because he knew that Jesus was going to come. Now, Zechariah here is a very important part of this plan. And uh, he reacts in a very weird way, right? Uh, instead of believing the angel, what does he do? He asks for a sign. He looks at how old he is, his gray hair, his lack of strength, right? And uh, 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 Elizabeth's uh, barrenness. And he doesn't believe in the angel. And as a result, the angel strikes him dumb. He has heard the greatest news in the last 400 years, in his time, obviously, and he can't tell anybody. He has to use hand signals. But at the end, in verse 23 to 25, we see that God's word through the angel is reliable because it says, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, the question that uh, I ask myself and other people ask as well is, when you read this, why do we have to know about Ze Zechariah's lack of faith and asking for a sign? Why couldn't 
we just go straight from the announcement of the angel to Mary, uh, not Mary, but Elizabeth being pregnant. Well, is it because Luke didn't like Zechariah? He wanted Zechariah to look bad. Right? He, he wanted to, you know, to show that Zechariah was not a, a, as good or faithful a priest as he should have been. No, I don't think so. I think there is a bit of a lesson for us, isn't it? Because the main point is faith, isn't it? He wants, remember that this is the gospel of knowing for sure. So how is Theophilus going to know for sure about the life of Jesus? Well, he's to trust two things, isn't it? The first thing is he's to trust Luke because Luke is a good investigator and he is investigated from eyewitnesses. But the second thing I think that underlines the whole book of Luke is God's word and God's promises are trustworthy. God's word and God's promises are trustworthy. And that's the first instance in which we see it here, isn't it? Because God has made a promise in the book of Malachi. God has made a promise again through the angel to Zechariah and he will keep his word. So when Theophilus is reading this book, where does he get his assurance from? How does he kill the mosquito of doubt? Because he trusts Luke in writing his, his uh, account, but he also trusts God's word. Because God's word is always true. It is faithful. It is trustworthy. Now as we come to the end of this section and we look at ourselves, I wonder, all of us have doubts, don't we? I mean, if we are really honest, there are times where we have doubts. Some of you may not be Christians, you may not know Jesus, and you have doubts about Jesus. But how do we know and trust and have faith in Jesus? Not because we believe in something which is unbelievable, or we take the leap of faith. No, we believe in something which is totally logical and believable because it was witnessed and testified by eyewitnesses. And we can also believe because God's word is reliable and true and it will never fail us. Now sometimes when I wake up in the morning, uh, you feel a bit down. I don't know, sometimes, do any of you feel down when you wake up in the morning? You think, oh, you know how hard it is to be a Christian? Woe is me, right? But then, I remember what one of my uh, lecturer friends in theological college used to say. He said, you know, when he wakes up and he feels down, he asks himself the question, has anything changed? Has anything changed? Did Jesus come? Yes. Did Jesus die to save us? Yes. Did Jesus rise again to give us new life? Yes. Will Jesus come again in judgment? Yes. And then he says, well, then the Christian life has not changed. No matter how I feel, isn't it? Because these are realities that we can hold on to even in the midst of feeling down. In conclusion, I remember um, when the tsunami came many years ago and uh, you know, swept all those people to their deaths. I remember one newspaper I read, quote-unquote, said, the waves of destruction wash away belief in God's goodness or God's benevolence. Right? Because I remember some newspaper articles saying, how can a good God allow this to happen? Now, if you believe in God because it's a philosophy, because of morality, because of wishful thinking, then when the tsunami hits, the reality of tsunami hits, and people die, whole towns are destroyed, then where is the strength of your faith? There is no strength. You will have doubt. But it's only when you know the reality of God acting in history to be true, to be real, to be reliable, to be witnessed by eyewitnesses because His Word and His promises do not fail us, then you will not have doubt. 
So as we come to today's passage, just the very first chapter only, not even the first chapter, half of the first chapter, already is such an encouragement to us, isn't it? Because our faith is not built on sand or empty you know, structures which can fall down when we hit reality. But rather, our faith is built on reality. The reality that God has acted in this world, in history. And Jesus is real. And His promises, God's promises are real and will always be real. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that our faith is built on the reality of you working in our time, in our history. Dear Father, help us to see that truly, through a great miracle, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for your son Jesus. That the events that we will read, that we have read about in the book of Luke and your word, were verified by eyewitnesses and they show and prove without a doubt that your promises will always be true and will always be real. Help us if we are doubting, help us if we are weak and our faith is in a bad place to see that whatever situation that we find ourselves in, whatever weariness or fatigue that we face, that it is nothing compared to the sure knowledge that you have sent your son Jesus into this world, that he died and he rose again and that he will come again. Help us to see that these are not opinions, these are not legend, these are facts and reality and history. And uh, no matter how we feel, they show how you, you are real and you will continue to act in our world and finally bring your wrath and your salvation to come when Jesus comes again. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.